Hello again, and welcome to The Future Of. I'm your host, Jonathan Darvey. And today, we're going to be talking about the future of smart cities with my special guests, Vaclav Vincelek and David Voigt. I'm going to do a terrible job of introducing them, so I think they should just introduce themselves. I think that's probably best for everybody. Uh, Vaclav, why don't you begin? Hi, Jonathan. Uh, it's uh, great to be here uh, in this awesome studio. The view is absolutely amazing. Only Vancouver can do something like that. Um, so my name is Václav, and uh, I uh, started numerous uh, technology-based companies. Um, and uh, also with uh, David, we started uh, two ventures. One is called Urban Opus, um, and the other one is Urban, Opu uh, Urban Ventures Network. Uh, the first one is uh, more non-profit, and the other one is uh, purely for profit, where we're taking the ideas from the first and then trying to uh, commercialize the ideas for greater good and for profit. So David can talk about them as well. Thank you. Um, great to be here, Jonathan. What a wonderful place and a good time. It, it's, um, it's very appropriate for us to be diving into the concept of the future of cities and what smart cities are. Urban Opus was really founded on the principle that all of the, everything people are hearing about smart cities is commercial hype, meaning it's companies trying to sell you things, or more appropriate, companies trying to sell cities things. There's a real opportunity for the improvement of cities, and Urban Opus was, was framed around not... Um, commercial value but quality of life and so we're looking at the same thing smart cities are really about data but how can you use data for quality of life rather than commercial benefit what, what, what we've done with David for, over the years uh, yes um, especially myself I, my, my background is very technical uh, I, I was studying Electrotechnical engineering, uh, switching systems, phones, uh, programming, and all, all these things. So I, I was always very, very technical. And the older you get, you realize that the technology is uh, never really the barrier mm -hmm. or the solution. It's always the people who have to do something or who can who can who have the power to improve things. And I guess I, I get more and more. Uh, uh, sensitive uh, when um, uh, when people or organizations are coming with these new brand ideas and say only if we have so much technology here, even if we have these sensors, even if we have uh, these computers who will solve all our problems, life will be mm. beautiful, life mm. would be awesome. And uh, from my experience I can tell you that it's really the case that uh, we really, really need um, new technology. We have enough technology right now to uh, improve things for uh, betterment of the humanity, if you will. Mm. And uh, living in cities is definitely one of them. You have a wonderful way of breaking down technology in a way that uh, not just business people can understand, but uh, laymen like myself can understand. So it's, it's something that I have very much uh, enjoyed and admired uh, about you over the years um, because you really have to understand technology on a deep level in order to be able to explain it in that way. 
Um, David, I was wondering if, if can you give um, the audience r- maybe another minute or, or, or so, just uh, a bit more on your on your uh, your own science uh, science background? Sure, I am a yeah. scientist by yeah. original training. Yeah. Uh, I have a PhD in astronomy, hmm. and I was director of the University of British Columbia observatories, both geophysical and astronomical. Um, and that was my first love. And it, but it's a highly technical area. If you think about that, uh, astronomy was really the first science that got overwhelmed by data far before computer science came along, because you have these telescopes collecting enormous amounts of data from from space, and you have to understand what you're looking at and where it's going, um, and how it can feed you something that's useful information. Uh, I still love the sciences uh, deeply. I translated that love of sciences actually into being a director at Science World, the Public Science Museum in Vancouver. Um, That was when my children were younger, and so therefore creating and designing programs for public Mm -hmm. interaction and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, building uh, education value as well as community value. And some of the programs that I started there actually surprisingly enough, rolled off into companies. And one company I jumped out and, and led. And ever since then, I've been in the kind of digital space and creating startups. So you could say that I began in outer space, got lost, and ended up in cyberspace. And that sense that uh, it's the same vast, infinite you know, area of opportunity, except for cyberspace, it's already populated by humans. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like we're looking for aliens everywhere. The, the humans are already there, and you can actually change space around to create great value for people. And that's always been inspiring for me. Well, that's an excellent part for me to segue into back into the meat of our discussion around smart cities because it's all about humans hu- making uh, living situations, making uh, urban environments, and not just urban environments. We'll get into rural environments as well more livable for um, for us ordinary humans, or maybe in your case, uh, extraordinary. So um, let's just for the for the audience define what is what, what we're talking about with smart cities um, when and when when most observers are, are talking about it, uh, because it's, it's, it's increasingly a trending topic. And I'd like you to talk about how you view it differently, because you you both don't take a uh, conventional view, uh, if if it can be, if that can be said, of, of what a smart city is and what it could be. Um, sure, David? I'll take a stab at that, yeah. uh, Jonathan. I think the conventional view, and this is one we share, is that smart cities have something to do with improving cities through the use of data. So it's mass data or big data that will come along and somehow or another make a change. The conventional view, which is primarily a corporate view, is to imagine a city as a machine. And if you only have sensors in every part of the machine feeding into some kind of central processor, you can make the machine more efficient. So you can think of transportation or energy grids or water or anything like that. All those elements of infrastructure becoming more efficient for that. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that cities aren't machines. Cities are crucibles for humanity. And so how can you actually look at data 
being something that improves quality of life. And quality of life is a lot more important than whether I can find a parking space, right? The quality of life is much more than what the smart city, you know, um, uh, marketing is doing. And the smart city marketing is not, again, wrong from a corporate point of view. You know, upwards of 80% of any city's budget is spent on engineering, which is roads and sewers and everything else. And so it's not surprising that large corporates are selling cities. Well, if you put these sensors here and put sensors there, you can have marginal savings on all of these things. You can make them better. But from the city's point of view, that's engineering, and that's about the machine model. Um, they don't get into the messy problem of quality of life for people, people who inhabit the cities, because it's troublesome on security, privacy, all the rest of those things that people, you know, are are beginning to become wary of and cities don't want to go there. And so the corporate side and the government side only want to look at that machine model. Vasav and I both say this is the time we need to be looking at the human part of the city. And not only that, how can humans participate actively in this? How can data be the new oxygen of cities so that people breathe in and out to actually make their lives better and more inspired? And there are lots of ways for that to happen, but it's about interaction design and creating you know, ways that people can feel secure, feel safe, feel like they are contributing something at the same time, feeling like they're being part of a city. Uh, if I can wander on a little bit further, one of the huge problems of modern cities is that people feel lonely, people feel unincluded. And well, that's bizarre when you think that there's thousands of people within a few hundred yards of them. Uh, and so, you know, that sense of how can we use these kind of technologies to inform people, to engage people, to allow them to feel they belong and that they are being creative and appreciated and that their lives have opportunity. All of those things can be enhanced with data. Hmm. So you, we've covered this in a very sort of high level and, and almost a philosophical level. That was, that was terrific. Um, I was wondering, Vaslav, can you break down maybe um, on a more just with, with some examples, um, how this could apply, uh, how some of those problems are manifesting uh, currently, either in, I guess, I don't know, you, you would call them dumb cities uh, or, or, you know, cities that have not implemented uh, uh, smart cities as it's conventionally understood. And then, so, so maybe an example or, or two of, of that, of, of how these problems are, are manifesting, and then how your vision of uh, smart cities could work through, uh, through urban opus, the, the kind of uh, your methodology is, is a bit different. Mm, okay. Uh, that, yes, good question, Jonathan. Mm -hmm. So uh, first of all, as, as David alluded, the, the term smart city came out of, uh, if I'm not mistaken, IBM advertising because they created the Smart Planet, Smart City, uh, and it was uh, actually a hugely successful campaign for IBM. 
and uh, it became the memo which everybody took and started running with it without really comprehending what it means. And as with all labels, um, uh, it became unclear what actually constitutes smart city. Um, and if how can you recognize that you live in smart city or do you feel that your city is so stupid you cannot even live there? And um, when you talk to people, usually don't they don't refer to the city as being idiotic. Usually they refer to the local governments. So that's the first inclination that uh, the... Uh, label of smart city is, um, I, I don't think it's working to, to begin with because it's difficult to really measure what it's supposed to, uh, what, what, what is the panacea of uh, having smart city, how, how it's going to look like. And so uh, one, uh, and this is where we had numerous conversations with David, you know, if it's not smart city, how would you describe what smart city is or what it's supposed to be? And uh, one uh, suggestion is that uh, it can be called open city because all the conversations which people have about smart cities, it's about um, what can we do for the people living in smart city. Could you break that down? Um, I, you have a good example, um, one with uh, trees and, and yeah, allergies. Yeah, so that, 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 that's, yeah. That's, that's one thing. So, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, talking about mm-hmm. the first the open mm-hmm. city, uh, is uh, shouldn't we judge the city uh, or the environment where, where we live, how welcoming is to for anybody coming from the outside? Mm. Because you already know how to live in Vancouver. You already know the streets. You already know the public transportation. You already know uh, where the schools are or any facilities. Uh, but somebody who arrives by plane, train, car, so how long does it take them so let's say you are immigrant family. You get, uh, it's uh, Monday afternoon. You arrive uh, on a plane to Vancouver International Airport. And now what? Where are you going to stay? What are you going to eat? Where are you going to put your kids in school? Where are you going to work? Like, how long does it take you to get uh, assimilated in the city so you are a fully functional citizen in that city? So... Because it, it's a, we always talk about smart cities as the perspective from the inside uh, within the city itself. But we don't consider when people coming from the outside what it's going to do to them. And I, I think that's even more important than for people living there because they already know how to live there. Uh, they were able to live here for, but how old is Vancouver? Hundreds of years. So so that that's one aspect. And to also what uh, uh, what David was talking about, the sensors, the, the well-oiled machine. Um, uh, we, we have very uh, good examples how actually it's the people who can become the sensors for the city. Um, some time ago, I was on a, on a tour through Europe, and we were visiting uh, various cities and talking with entrepreneurs there. And one... Uh, application, which um, I'm still referring to, and it's now, what, four years old, was built for people who were disabled on in wheelchairs. And this application was um, uh, as the person in the wheelchair would embark on the daily tour through the city, grocery shopping, going to work, what have you, 
So they would turn on the application and the application through GPS and the accelerator in the in the phone, in the smartphone, uh, would map not only where they were going, but the quality of the road they were traveling on. And so now, uh, if the city would be really that smart as they try to portray themselves, they would encourage every single person in a wheelchair to use this application so they would get real-time data how disabled people are traveling through any city. And suddenly they would see that there are places that the disabled people never go to. And then they can discover that there is no uh, you know, access without a barrier or the, uh, the sidewalk or the road is not good enough to go there. And they can start really actually um, adjusting the city for people who live there. So that's a one example which, uh, again, it, it points to uh, we, don't need the, we don't need to buy millions of sensors. We just need to provide uh, the opportunity for people to collect data and then return it back to the city, and the city can act on it. So this is the real-time loop which would benefit uh, the people who live there and then the city responsible a, a, a responsibility than to be adjusted based on the data as the citizens are providing. And there are many companies which even we have some in, in Vancouver who claim that they can gather uh, opinion from their citizens. Well, we know how uh, uh, surveys, how well they are working. Not really. And, and how many people really uh, fill the survey uh, in, in a, with information which is meaningful to anything and usually nothing right so the, the, this is where the city is very purely uh, poorly trying to uh, gather information uh, I'll give you another example um, city of Vancouver uh, the the past mayor they tried to um, they, they they started goal with um, um, I don't know increase the green space in Vancouver by I don't know how many percent by planting all the trees sounds like an amazing idea to have a green city. Yes, we will be the greenest city. Well, I'm sure that you know that there are people with allergies living in the city. So do you know which trees cause what allergy to people who live in that area? So if you would start gathering data from people who live in neighborhoods, whether they have allergy this day, that day, and then start uh, correlating with the type of greenery it's around them, you would suddenly realize that you cannot plant certain trees in certain areas because it will be highly detrimental to people living in that area because who would be really benefiting is the pharma industry because they would sell more pills uh, to, to get rid of the allergy. So th these are a few examples how uh, we don't need more technology we just need to t use the technology which we have now in much smarter way and provide real benefits to real citizens living in the city. Well, that seems like a smart way or smarter way to uh, design a smart city with more of an opt-in approach. Um, maybe, David, um, maybe you could talk about uh, what's currently what you're currently seeing in uh, implementations of smart cities in North America or abroad, 
um, you know, where, you know, sort of a, a contrast with your model, how, how things are going. Um, go ahead. Sure. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, the, the typical implementations of smart city technology are in massive infrastructure monitoring and maintenance pieces. So, again, transportation is a huge one. Energy is another huge one. Um, the problem with that, to think of these data collecting uh, pieces as, well, there's several problems, but as, as a new infrastructure for the city, is that um, they are very expensive to implement, but much more expensive to maintain. So if you think of, we put sewers in a city. Well, sewers will last for 100 years. You put a sensor into you know, a sewer, and it'll need to be changed in two to three years. The lifetime of the technology goes over very quickly. And so that's why it's such a corporate model. If you Im implement this to make it work, you have to spend you know, far more to keep, keep up. Whereas this is where the human in the loop argument that Vasov started to get into is so important because if you think that the best sensor in a city has two legs and is walking around is actually already highly intelligent and their smartphone uh, that they have is a wonderful data collector and sharer, there's already a huge incentive in place for those smart people to upgrade their smart sensors all the time uh, because they want the best new phone. And so they're going to have the best technology for collecting. What you have to engineer around that is how, what data are being collected, what is the human's part in making a decision in that so that they're not being observed and they feel their privacy and security is being maintained, but also how they build social capital for participating in this. For instance, on the negative side, there are cities like Shanghai, who put in, you know, enormous sensor bases for smart cities, but a lot of it has to do with facial recognition, so they can know where every one of their citizens is all the time. And, well, that's not really what I think most people in North America or most people in the world want, period. And so, um, if you're about monitoring people and controlling people and so on, that's the wrong way for an infrastructure to go. Um, and so those models for, you know, how we allow data to be collected and shared. Uh, for instance, something that Vaslav and I have been working on for a while, this is Vaslav's, you know, uh, one of his pet projects, is a city like Vancouver could make enormous amounts of headway in this area with a very simple model of saying, okay, Uber, come to town. Lyft, come to town. You know, Foodora, come to town. Y part of your operating license in this city is that you have to share your aggregated, an anonymized data openly with everyone else. So we, w we, can, uh, we can understand where this is going. It's not going to be uh, any kind of uh, impediment for you making money in your business because we're not going to take any of your your uh, material, but you have to share this data so that we can start moving us together. Imagine how, for instance, all the car sharing information mixed with all the bike sharing information, mixed with all the information that's come forward from citizens in wheelchairs could mix with transit information to actually 
create a much better mobility for everybody involved. But right now, transit is completely excluded from the people in the wheelchairs information, from the car-to-go information, from all the rest, uh, because there isn't a trusted broker. There's no broker in place where you can say, this data is clean, meaning it's usable and it's high quality, but it's also, there's no individuals who can be identified in this. There's no private information that's being got, gone away. It is, but it's still valuable. And there's no organization yet that's actively collecting and sharing valuable data about a city for the public good. Mm. So everything both of you are saying makes a ton of sense. And, you know, if if we're comparing the, the two models of smart cities, you, on the one hand, you've got a version that is uh, the technology is siloed. It's uh, extremely expensive to implement. Uh, it's it's inefficient. It's not very open. Uh, your, your data is uh, being seen. Uh, it, it, security is, is a huge issue. Um, and... Uh, you know, you, you can, at worst, you could envision sort of a, a Beijing model of, of, uh, um, of privacy or, or lack thereof implemented here. Uh, so that's, on, on the one hand, that's one version of, of a smart city, almost a dystopian version. On the other hand, you've got your model, which is opt-in, open. Uh, it's relatively uh, efficient and cost-effective to do this. Um, it it just sounds you know on on an intuitive level that this seems you know it, you've you've explained it very simply. Uh, how is this not uh, already taking off, or maybe it is? Uh, wh- what what's what's the next step for uh, Urban Opus to um, you know guide this model forward? We take an experimental approach. We are working with organizations uh, to implement projects. Uh, on an urban scale, but rather than taking a machine model for a city, our model is a city is a community of communities. And so it's based on trust, meaning the average citizen is not going to trust their data about where they're traveling, for instance, with City Hall. Why, Why would they think City Hall would want to do that? But they might trust it if they travel by bicycle with their bicycle club, right? And so that's a community. That's a community of interest for them. Or the wheelchair people would share their data with their wheelchair support group or people that are into different activities. They, they all belong to a whole set of inter, intersecting, a, a wonderful tapestry of communities that make up a city. If each one of those communities within a city were enabled to serve their people better, using data and trickled up the the data we believe that's where smart is going to grow mm. and it's going to be cultivated and so our process is project by project app by app we believe that cities will grow as a community of communities or a community of smart communities a smart a smart city is a community of smart communities where people are engaged and inspired to share their 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 lives, uh, breathing data like oxygen, as I said earlier. 
Sure. So we're, we're talking about communities really at any scale, and that's part of what interested me about the urban open opus model. And you've talked about not just applying this um, on a, a citywide scale. Uh, I mean, uh, smart city, again, is a bit of a misnomer in that we can apply this to rural areas as well. I, I wonder, um, Vaslav, did you want to speak to that? <clears throat> yes. Um, and to also uh, take along what uh, David was saying, uh, when you ask somebody, you know, random person on the street, like, you know, do you know what smart city is? Um, I, I would wage my bet that most people say, oh, you mean um, like there's no traffic. The traffic will flow really nicely. That's... Uh, answer to most for most people that's that's the answer because they understand and understandably so because if you're sitting in traffic you'd like the traffic to go better uh, rather than thinking even further how to change the transportation in the city and uh, rather than using the stick that oh we have to get people out of the car why don't you create better opportunity how they can move through the city um, I don't know about any app which you can wake up in the morning and you can say, you know, today I'd like to get from home. I'd like to go to work and it's a beautiful day and I can take leisurely time to get there. And the app would say, great idea. So you will walk for 10 minutes here. This is where you can uh, get your rent bike and then you can ride on a seawall or, you know, through some neighborhoods and then you can get uh, to your office. Traveling time will be 45 minutes and it will cost you $2. Sometime you wake up and say, I'm in really a rush, I need to do this. Yes, Uber is already on its way with Lyft, and then combination with uh, SkyTrain, or you know, in some cities it's Metro, whatever you call it, Subway, and you get to your destination, and it will cost you 20 bucks, and you get there in half time. So rather than telling people how they should, how they should live their lives, you know, this is where the smart city, if you still stay with the name, should offer you the opportunity to make your own choice. And I think that's where, uh, again, we're we missing a lot. Um, so, but going to your, uh, you know, question about the rural uh, uh, thing, um, without the uh, anything outside of boundaries of, of, of the cities, that's where actually we're getting the food. This is where we're getting all the produce and everything coming to the cities. So cities uh, have the vested interest in to support um, these rural communities as much as they can because the more people you have in the cities, uh, the more resources you need to get into the city. And to uh, provide equal opportunity also for people living in the rural areas, it's, it's in the best interest of everybody because we know that uh, living on a farm um, I have limited uh, knowledge about that I experienced many summers when I was little to to, uh, to live in countryside and I know it's a very difficult life and less and less people are inclined or willing to do that so you know th this is another part of um, I like to get strawberries well, um, do you know actually how difficult it is to grow strawberries? Do you know how difficult it is to pick them up and get to your uh, uh, to your local store? 
So the integration between city and anything outside of the city is critical, and uh, no solution for smart city can be, be uh, full uh, or properly implemented without integration of um, the areas outside of the city. Um, I was wondering if we could just pick up. Uh, we're almost out of time, actually. So um, the, the last point I, I wanted to get to, um, and David, maybe you can um, talk about this, is you know this is this doesn't just apply when we're talking about smart cities to North America, Canada, USA. Uh, this can be a global phenomenon. What what kind of impact could a smart city of the kind you both have been discussing? Uh, what kind of an impact could that have on, on the world and the cities where we live? That's a great question, Jonathan. Um, we see the world as roughly 10,000 cities you know, of a Vancouver size or above. That's a lot of cities. That's a huge number of people. And humanity is flocking to cities all over the world. We believe that by 2050, 70% Plus, probably closer to 80% of humanity is going to be living in those cities. And from a technology point of view, they're likely going to be very cookie-cutter, meaning they have the same kinds of infrastructure. Everybody has, for instance, one of half a dozen different smartphones or all of those, those type of things, even though within them they have very different cultures, religions, and communities to support that. And so we see that an app, for instance, that's developed in Budapest and works for you know, a set of wheelchair people there can be easily transposed into a community in Vancouver and moved anywhere else. And so we see the world of cities as being an incredibly fertile place because there are so many bright people, and that the model for smart cities as machines organized by central bodies like city government is completely unscalable, so they will be making the cities better for themselves. We see that fertility of cities around the world being just an amazingly great thing, and it's going to be happening very quickly. That's why we are on a project basis. We will plant a seed here, we'll plant a seed there, we'll, we'll organize uh, these. But in the long run, as long as the data frontier remains open, which again, uh, isn't guaranteed, um, this will go in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And to, to add to, to what uh, David is saying, uh, um, every single time you talk about smart cities, uh, you hear companies complaining that the city is not buying the, re- the the greatest technology solution from them. Well, show me city in the world which says we have so much money, we don't know what to do with it. Uh, every city is constantly budget constrained. Uh, every city is always fighting to just keep the infrastructure uh, going. And so the illusion that... Um, cities or the governments, uh, uh, the city governments, will be able to pay for these new things. Again, it's an illusion. The, the process, it's a political process. It's a, a money a constraint uh, issue. So, again, there, there is a place for the government to define policies, the fair play ground. So anybody can come to Vancouver. As we were saying, Uber can come 
here, Lyft can come here, anybody can come here. There should be the same policy for everybody applying, including sharing the data. So you have for-profit company which is playing by, by well-defined rules, which the city can enforce with the help of you know, other, other level of governments. So now if you, if you extrapolate that and say, okay, I have an entrepreneur who proves application that it's profitable in one city, it can easily scale suddenly to 10,000 cities around the world. So if you think about scalability and uh, global reach for all the innovators around the world, this is suddenly a gigantic opportunity of reaching out to, I don't want to say unlimited customer base, but fairly sizable customer base. So we know that cities will grow. Uh, an example, in, in Vancouver, uh, the, the, how many people are biking more every year? There's more and more people biking all the time. So if you have uh, an application which you provide to all the people who cycle, provide them value for the data they supply you by using smartphone carrying every day so you know exactly how the people on bicycles are moving through the city. And based on that, you can start making other decisions, whether it's a for public good or commercial good. And then you can take immediately the same concept and you can multiply in 10,000 cities around the world. And if Vancouver has about, what, million people, and we're talking about 10,000 or th cities which have million and more up, you suddenly start getting into hundreds of millions, billions. So this is suddenly your opportunity. So this is where we see that the, uh, the smart city should not be equal to charity or non-profit organizations or just depending on government uh, paying for the solutions. Quite contrary, it can be highly profitable. So we are not saying that uh, anything with to do with smart cities it should be charity or non-profit only, quite contrary. But if the data which are shared with everybody else in these cities will help people to improve their lives there, then everybody will be winner. Well, let, let uh, me oh, give one, one practical example, if I may, along mm. the lines of what we talk about. Mm. There is no city in the world who can afford to properly serve the people, the citizens of that city who go by wheelchairs. They may make noises about it, but, and you know, uh, they, they try to do their best, but they don't have the budgets to do that. Um, but the citizens of one city who are in wheelchairs can work together with a simple app to collect data to make lives better for themselves. And if that app works in one city, it'll work in 10,000 other cities, all of which have people with wheelchairs. And all of a sudden, you've massed all of the people of a single interest who can't be served by their city to serve themselves on a global scale. Hmm. And that's exciting. And that, that's, 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 a, that's a proposition that matters. Excellent. Well, uh, I look forward to the prospect of living in a smarter city. Um, so I think we've uh, covered a lot of ground here. We're pretty much out of time, unfortunately, because I have about a million other questions for you. Um, so before we get into part two, you, you guys are here for another hour, right? <laughs> um, no, um, maybe uh, I'll, I'll just remind the audience I've been speaking with Václav Vincelek and David Voigt of Urban Opus. 
Um, before we go, uh, Voslov, uh, if you have a public persona where you'd like people to reach out to you, uh, what would that be? Um, LinkedIn is probably the easiest way to find me and connect with me. So, yeah, LinkedIn is uh, fine. That's how you can find me and connect with me. And I'm looking forward to connect with uh, anybody who has uh, the interest in smart cities and how to make technology better uh, for humanity. Excellent. And David? Anybody who, who wants to connect with us at Urban Opus, it's urbanopus.net, and all the contact points are there. Perfect. Well, it has been a genuine pleasure speaking with both of you. And you have been listening to The Future of Smart Cities. I'm your host, Jonathan Narvey, and I will see you next time. Thank you for listening.